Well, good morning, Hillside Church. Uh, I'm glad that through technology, we can continue to spend time remembering the goodness of our God together. We've done that through singing, through prayer, through giving, and now we are going to look at the word together. As you may know, we've been focusing on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. This morning, I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. And when I say turn in your Bibles, I'd like for you to actually turn in your Bibles. If you left your Bible at home, good news for you. So go now, grab them. Uh, If you don't have a Bible at all, we'd love to get you one soon. So just send a note to me or to our office and we'll set you up. Friends, we are in a bizarre world right now, and I know I'm the first person to say that so far. Uh, If the fighting and infighting and virtue signaling and subtweeting weren't bad enough before, COVID-19 has given the globe new topics to disagree about. Topics with such vast, complex, and broad-reaching implications that everyone is affected. And so everyone has something to say. Now, you realize, I hope, that this isn't new. There's always a fight going on, isn't there? And yet, everybody wants unity, it seems. People put coexist stickers on the back of their Honda Civics. There are calls for peace. Opposing groups are pressed to form coalitions. The Americans yearn to bridge what is now a massive political divide in seemingly stark contrast to their motto of e pluribus unum, out of many, one. And that divide isn't absent here in Canada. We just wish it would go away, that we would have unity. And yet, doesn't it always seem to fall flat? The unity and peace that we're striving to get doesn't seem to ever happen. And perhaps when it does happen, it seems so shallow that the unity doesn't even look like anything recognizable. It's kind of exhausting, isn't it? Well, as we read and as we have read this letter to the Philippians, a church Paul loved dearly, I think we noticed that there was a bit of a disunity going on there too. Not that things were a disaster or that there was like a church split or something, but I think they may have been experiencing some of the sort of disunited angst that we generally feel too. And Paul wants to address this in light of what we know about Christ. So we are going to be looking this morning at verses 12 to 18, but I'd like to start reading at verse 1 where we were last week to give us context. So if you're able, why don't you please stand with me in honor of God's word? So, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have chosen to teach us something about yourself, uh, not just through your community, but through your spoken and written word to us. So Lord, as we study this, as we seek to understand you more and follow you well, I pray that you would make yourself known um, and that as we study, Lord, that ultimately your name would be made known to be great. So teach us what you would teach us this morning. Uh, we trust you and we are open to what you would say. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the reasons that I wanted us to start earlier on was first, because some of you needed to stand up more, but more importantly, our passage today starts with a reference to the part before it. And this makes sense, right? This is a letter from Paul to his friends in Philippi. It would be terrible practice to just pick the middle paragraph of an email and only read that part, right? Same here. And that's why we encourage you to be reading the full letter at home. It's short enough that you can actually read it in a single sitting. It takes about 14 minutes. In fact, while we're going through this series I'd encourage you to read it over at least once a week. But enough about that. Um, let's move on to the text. If we look at this section, uh, the one that we're looking at today from 12 to, to 18, um, it starts off, therefore, my beloved. And many of you know the classic line in biblical reading. Whenever you see a therefore, you need to ask, what is it therefore? Well, Derwin actually led us through that last week. Uh, we see that right before this, Paul gives us the picture of the humble and the obedient Christ. He told the church that he wanted them united, looking out for others' interests, ultimately to have the same attitude in themselves that we see in Jesus. And then he quotes this beautiful hymn describing the perfect obedience of Christ who obeyed even to the point of death on a cross. And now, therefore, he is highly exalted, the name above all other names, the King of Kings. And therefore, my beloved, 
just like Jesus obeyed humbly, and because he is the king on his throne, here's what you should do. All of last week's sermon and passage is the basis for this one. And so he calls them to keep on obeying. The church in the city of Philippi had a rich heritage. Uh, If you'd like to read more about them, the story of the beginning of this church is recorded in Acts chapter 16. We see there people like Lydia and the Philippian jailer who are fast to obey, fast to listen to the voice of God, to the message of Jesus, and to change their lives completely as a result to even take great risks to follow Jesus. This is the family history of the Philippian church, just as you've always obeyed, he says. Later in this letter, Paul is going to thank them for their generosity in providing financially for the work of the gospel. They have a habit of being obedient. But Paul's first encouragement is this. Don't just obey because of me. Don't obey just because you love me or because you want to impress me. Any of you with kids probably know what this is like, when you walk into the room and all of a sudden the entire atmosphere changes. Uh, You know something changed just because you showed up. There might be a sense of fear or a sense of pride, knowing that they care enough what you think that they actually changed what they're doing. But ultimately, your goal wasn't that they obey in order to impress you, but that they become obedient people. I remember when I was little, I shared a bedroom with my younger brother, Jacob. Uh, As kids, and still now, we were buddies and were each other's main person to play with. Of course, we kept up the jokes and chatting well past our bedtime, too, because we shared a room. I remember vividly that we'd both be still wide awake, talking and laughing way past our bedtime, when we'd hear the quiet sound of our dad's footsteps on the staircase. Dad was coming to our room, and Jacob and I had very different responses. We both knew we were supposed to be asleep, but we weren't. We also wanted our dad to be impressed with us. Jacob did what most others would probably do, and he pretended to sleep. He closed his eyes, tried to stop laughing, and like breathed deeply like he was asleep. Me, on the other hand, I was really worried about lying and being dishonest. I didn't want to do that. So instead, my dad would peek into our room only to find me laying there with my eyes wide open as possible. I wanted to show that I wasn't truly sleeping. Of course, that probably didn't have the same heartwarming effect that the eight-year-old Kevin hoped it would. It just looked like I was rebelling. Well, as frustrating as it may be, maybe as funny as it may be to see that type of behavior in our kids, Isn't it true that that's also how we sometimes act? We vary our behavior for the sake of other people because we want to impress them to make sure that they believe something to be true about us. Well, this is what Paul is saying here. You are an obedient people, so keep it up. But keep it up whether or not you hear me coming up the staircase. Paul was absolutely instrumental in the fact that they obeyed in the beginning. And by the way, we actually do need people in community to help us to obey, to hold us accountable to what we say we believe. We need the encouragement of this. But that cannot be the reason that we obey. What reason do we have to obey? Well, it's this. 
the king of glory descended from his throne in obedience. And he is again on his throne. And he asks us to learn this attitude. So like I did back in January, I want to invite you again to think of this question. Who is your king? Because Paul is going to show us shortly what we are going to do out of obedience. And your ability to obey him truly will depend significantly on who your allegiance is to. If your king is someone else other than Jesus, it's going to be very hard to walk in obedience to him. So we should choose to obey and obey humbly because of our king and not because of our own reputation. To help us understand what our obedience should look like, um, Paul then asks us to think about our own salvation, to look at the fact that without Christ, we will perish, to the fact that God offers us salvation from our self-destructive sin tendency, salvation from the justice that we deserve. He does that with a very peculiar phrase in this letter. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What on earth is Paul saying here? Is he saying that I'm supposed to put work and effort as part of my salvation? Or is he saying that it's God who brings salvation? Well, the answer is yes. A lot of work has been done to try and resolve the tension here, to make that paradox work, to make these ideas, which seem mutually exclusive, to make them work together. The first half seems to say that I need to put in the right effort to obey the law, and that's what saves me. The second half seems to say that no, instead, God is the one who does all the work, that I can just be who I am. Well, like is often the case in scripture, I think this tension is not just important and not just intended, but I think it's actually beautiful that it exists there. And I don't think that we can afford to forget the contrast between these two ideas and the fact that they're both in God's word. In this case, right beside one another. Jerry Bridges actually says that uh, there is no place in scripture where we are told to both to rely on God, where it also doesn't say that we need to be working according to our reliance on God. They're tandem ideas. They're married together all throughout God's word. I actually like how John Murray deals with this. He says that God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor our working suspended because God works. Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation, as if God did his part and we did ours, so that together, in coordination, they both produce the required result. Now, in fact, God works, and we also work. But the relation is that because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us. And that's kind of what we see in this next part, that it's God working in us that causes us to work. So we're uh, in this next line here where it says, in verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
So God says that it's a result of his work that we have the desire to work and that that we work. Um, but it still says that we need to do something on our part, right? And why is this? Why is it that we still need to be doing something? Well, I think we're helped out by thinking through the way that Paul often speaks. His pattern is, of instruction is often this. Since you are saved, since you have this new identity, now act like it. Take hold of your identity and then live according to it. Well, to further see this, I think it might be helpful to pay attention to where Paul is about to turn. Um, shortly, he's going to get to this cool part of the passage where he quotes um, another song. Paul, who is writing this, has a different life experience than you and I do. And so he's drawing from different areas and different ideas than we are. Paul is a man who grew up in the Jewish tradition, deeply in it. He actually says he is a Hebrew of Hebrews, the quintessential Israelite man. That means he knew his Old Testament well, like really, really well. So when he speaks, his knowledge of the Old Testament, the fact that he spent so much time in this, it almost seeps out of him. He can't help drawing references back to the Old Testament. We have similar experiences in our culture. Some of you are well-versed in memes and meme formats. Uh, The moment you see a picture of Kermit the Frog drinking a Lipton tea, you're expecting him to do what? Well, to say something a little condescending and sarcastic. For others of you, when I say, Luke, I am your father, the entire plot of six movies, or maybe just three, immediately jumps into your mind. If I hum these three notes, you might get the urge of adrenaline, a need to grab a jersey, an insatiable desire for some salty snacks you see that even without going to a course for any of these things, they inform how you view the world. So when Paul makes one of these references in this passage, I think it's actually important for us to know that as we look at it. Uh, So remember last week how Derwin talked about the passage being an early church hymn? Well, this is this one that's coming up next. Uh, Paul quotes an even older song, the song of Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 32. So if you'd like, you can turn there in your Bibles. Um, If you have a student in youth, they just memorized the book order of the Old Testament. So they should be able to help you find it. So that's Deuteronomy chapter 32. And I'm going to read from verse 1 to 5. It's much longer, and you can read that uh, in your time at home. It says this, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children, because they are blemished, because they are a crooked and twisted generation. This is a pretty interesting song. Uh, We don't sing it here on Sundays. Um, And uh, it actually, it goes on, and it's kind of this deep and dark song. And it's spoken as a warning over the people of Israel. 
People of Israel were a people that God promised would one day be called his people. And he said that they would call him their God. That the nations would be able to look at them, to look at Israel and see the greatness of God. Throughout scripture, we actually see this as a consistent image. That the world around us should be able to look at God's people and see what he is like. But in this song of warning, Moses says that while the people were anointed with oil, a symbol of belonging, they instead used used that oil to feast and actually got fat on the oil of anointing. They took advantage of his grace. Instead of acting like his children, his representatives, their attitude was to take what they could get from God and then leave him. And throughout the rest of this chapter, they just do things that are dishonorable to God and don't represent God well. God mourns over Israel when he uh, talks, when he says to the prophet Ezekiel, he says, my people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to listen to your words, but they don't put them into practice. Indeed, to them, you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well, for they hear your words but they do not put them into practice. You've seen this before. If you love the Lord, you may know the pain of what it's like to see someone use the name of God to misrepresent him. The Roman Crusades are a horrifying example of this. So is the evil enslavement of African people throughout the United States and much of the Western world. Although they knew God, They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. If God has called us, his people, his children, we should act like it. So you see, we shouldn't be obedient to God for our own reputation. We talked about that first. But instead, the way we behave, the things that we do, bring into question the reputation of our incredible God who is the kind of God who came to die on a cross, descending into darkness in order to offer us salvation. Wesley says of Christ, O Jesus, full of grace and truth, more full of grace than I have sinned. Think through uh, the first lines of the Lord's Prayer with me. Uh, We begin already ascribing that God is our Father, we are his children. And then we pray, hallowed be your name, or may your name be made known to be great. Do you think that maybe our obedience to Christ might be part of causing that prayer to be answered? That maybe by obeying Christ and acting like his children, that that is a way of making God's name great in the world around us. Because if our obedience or disobedience tells the world something about who this God of ours is, then I think that's what it does. So, back at our text. Since it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, and since we know that, and since the world knows that that's what we claim, when we obey, I think it makes some sense that we do so with a weightiness. I think we should obey, recognizing that our behavior might say something about the God that we serve, with a fear and a trembling. One commentator says that we can understand this phrase, fear and trembling, 
as an obedience in light of our weaknesses, knowing that we are not naturally up to the task, but knowing that we should work to be good representatives of the God who has called us his. But remember, take courage, that before we obeyed, he has already caused us, called us his. Philippian church, hillside church, let's work out the reality of our salvation obediently because it's not about our reputation, but it is about his. Well, uh, it's well and good for us to talk about obedience. And there are many things that we can and we should obey, but Paul has something in particular in mind. And you probably remember it. This whole section is all about the humble unity of God's people. He starts out in verse 1 by telling them that the main thing, the main thing that would bring Paul joy would be to see their unity. And to get there, he reminded the people not to look to their own interests, but to the interests of others. In fact, be like Jesus, who definitely did not look out to his own interests. So like him, and for his reputation, you too should obey by what? By not grumbling and complaining. Paul has spent this whole time setting us up for what he's going to ask us to do, and we're finally at it. Have you ever had a friend who, spend, who spends 10 minutes waffling about trying to convince you of why to do something before they actually ask you to do it? Normally, it's about moving. Hey, Brett, you have a truck, right? Is there, a, is there anything in the back of that truck by any chance? No? No? Okay. All right. Interesting. Um, and Saturday, just out of curiosity. Are you doing anything Saturday? N nothing, huh? All right. Interesting. And they might go on and on, making sure that by the time they ask you to help them move, you no longer have any excuses to say no. You have to. It might be a little bit annoying, hey? Well, in a much more godly way, Paul gets to the hard thing after convincing us that there's no other way around it. We have to obey. We have no other choice but to obey. Even though, now that he says it, we may not really want to do what he's asking us to do. And hit the point home, here he references that bit from Deuteronomy that we already looked at. He reminds us of the children of Israel who wandered in the desert grumbling and complaining. Instead of being lights in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation, they became a crooked and perverse generation. The words Paul uses here, grumbling and complaining, actually have more to do with the infighting and disunity than they do with just pouting. It's kind of the idea of water cooler gossip, dissension and disagreement with the people who serve them as pastors. Like the people of Israel who complained to each other, saying, who is this Moses anyway? Did he just lead us out into the wilderness to die? The people in the church of Philippi were in danger of not being united as a church, of picking one another apart, of quarreling and bickering about a number of things. Maybe it was around the intricacies of the doctrine of justification, or maybe it was just about the color of the church carpet. In any case, their disunity meant two things. They weren't being Christ-like by being disunited 
they were publicly doing a disservice to the reputation of the God they serve. Uh, In 2 Timothy 2, Paul warns against the danger of quarreling over foolish controversies. I like the line by G.K. Chesterton. It says, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because generally they are the same people. And in many ways, this is Paul's point. By spending all our time in disunited quarreling, the danger is that we make our brothers and sisters the enemy and we lose sight of the real enemy and the real mission to be lights in the middle of this world and to hold fast to the faith. In the book of Matthew, Jesus himself says that if we belong to him, we are lights. We are cities on a hill. And part of our identity is to shine the love of God. We may and we will disagree about very important and sometimes not very important things. But ultimately, our enemy is not within the family of God, but without, with the pervasive evil that steals, kills, and destroys. The kind of evil that motivates racial injustice that led to slavery or to the murdering of a man in broad daylight simply because he was black. The evil that results in the exploitative, multi-billion dollar pornography industry. The evil of sin of each of our own personal sin. So evil that it required the very life of God. How terrible would it be if we spent so much time quarreling among ourselves that we missed the real mission? What if we missed telling someone that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, they could be made free from their sin and from their death? For Paul, this good news of the cross the holding fast to the faith was the most important thing to him. He asked the Philippian church to continue in their obedience, in their unity, in their holding fast to the faith. And he says that if they do, he'll be proud of the fact that his life's work wasn't in vain. I want us to think, what is the motivating element of our lives? Do you think you'd react like Paul? that the value of his life was tied up in the success of the good news of Jesus, Paul cannot separate the two. For him, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He says here at the end of this passage that if his life needs to be poured out as an offering in order to help the church produce faithfulness, that that would be worth it. In fact, he doesn't just say it would be worth it. He says it would be worth rejoicing over. And he says that the sacrifice of giving up your own interests for others, well, that is worth rejoicing into. Do we have the same perspective? I don't think that most days I do. Most days, my views of success, they have much more to do with much trivial things like my money, what my friends think of me, or probably, what do I get to eat for my next meal? But by God's grace, he is patient, and he knows that my desires are misaligned, and in obedience to him, as I practice what he's asked me to do, he will make me a little bit more like Jesus, a little bit more like Paul, a little bit less like Kevin every day. 
And paradoxically, that will actually make me a lot more like the true Kevin I've been created to be. So friends, in light of what Christ has done, and in light of the fact that he is on his throne, let's prioritize our mission. Like we mentioned at the beginning, our world is desperate to create unity. But unity for the sake of unity is pallid, it's shallow, it has no depth. It has no true unity. Sometimes our attempts at unity have nothing to do with self-sacrifice. Really, we just want people who disagree with us to be united because that would mean they're on our side. Our unity doesn't matter because unity matters. Our unity matters solely because Christ matters. Jesus' prayer in John 17, before he went to the cross, was that the unity of his people would show the world something about his self-sacrificing love, the love that he has for us, that God has for us. Today is Pentecost, where we celebrate the fact that the Spirit of God has united himself with us. As Christians, we are, of all people, most aware of our need for the grace of Jesus. So let's demonstrate this by sacrificially offering grace to those around us, to our brothers and sisters in the faith. So as you go this week, I plead that in light of God's mercies, you'd offer yourselves as living sacrifices with the family you're cooped up with, with the Christians you disagree with, with the COVID policies you think are misplaced, with the people whose theological perspectives you don't share. Look not to your own interests, but consider one another as more important than yourselves. So Father, this task that you have given us is weighty, and we approach it with fear and trembling that perhaps what we might do might say something about who you are. But we rejoice and thank you for the fact that because of who you are, you are working in us to become the type of people that you have called us to be to be like the children that you say that we are. Lord, we thank you that you are the one who is willing and working in our lives. Lord, we remember this as we sing these words uh, out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Lord, that it is you who are working in us, and we rejoice that it is uh, not I, but Christ in me. So I pray that you keep these things close to our heart, um, and that you continue to shape us more and more and more into the image of your precious Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.